The following content is for mature audiences and may contain graphic depictions. Listener discretion is advised. My grandfather was a combat pilot. Even though he always felt distant, I liked him. When I grew older, I realized that he was always aware, always looking for any signs of danger, shell shock, PTSD, it it has many names. My mother told me he didn't used to be like that, that he changed when he came back from Vietnam. My grandpa's profession was likely the reason why I became obsessed with space astronauts, pilots, and planes. We used to talk about them when we were together. He was a really skilled and high-ranking officer in the army, and he knew some people, even a couple really well-known astronauts. When I once asked him if he met anyone who went to the moon, he simply replied, don't ever talk to me about the moon, boy. It's a dark and evil place. He died back in 2004 from natural causes. About two months ago, we decided to renovate my grandparents' old house. While clearing out the attic, I found an old metallic box. In the box, there was a number of things which I assumed belonged to my grandfather. There was a military medal, a stack of papers, and an old picture of my grandfather and two other men I didn't recognize. My grandpa looked around 40, so I assumed that the picture was taken in the 70s. All of them were wearing spacesuits, and the scene was a typical backdrop used by NASA. But the logo was missing. Only a blank monochrome background. The mission patch was titled Dawnbreaker. I didn't understand anything. My grandfather was an astronaut? Why did he never tell me about this? Dawnbreaker? I never heard such a mission. It must have been covered up really well, but why? I found the answers in the papers on the bottom of the box. I'll rewrite the literal contents below, but I warn you that many people might find this very disturbing. My dear family, if you ever find this, I must confess something. In 1972, I was not in Vietnam. I wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but if you found this, it probably doesn't matter anymore. Back in 1965, me and a handful of other pilots were selected for a non-public team of astronauts who would participate in covert missions in space for our government. We wouldn't get the glory and fame of regular astronauts, but our country needed us, and so we were there. In early 1972, we were told that, for an unspecified amount of time, our country had a secret satellite orbiting the moon. They never told us what it did. Or why it was there. Just that a few weeks prior, it had crashed to the surface on the dark side of the moon, for unknown reasons, and that the data it carried was crucial. 
The government needed to recover it, and thus was sending me and two other astronauts to reclaim the satellite's memory module. The equipment of the planned Apollo 18 mission was essentially transferred to us. From what we'd been told, the Apollo team was furious, and they had a reason to be, after all. It seemed that whoever we've been under was much more powerful than NASA. The whole mission was top secret, obviously. I was officially deployed to Vietnam, while in reality, we underwent extensive training for the mission. After a couple months, we found ourselves standing on the launch pad in front of this behemoth of a rocket that would take us to the moon. I was the mission commander, while Lieutenant Carver was the lunar excursion module pilot, and Lieutenant Ackerman was the command service module pilot. The flight to the moon took roughly three days. After arriving, we made a couple of orbits around it. Each time we flew behind the horizon, created by the moon itself, I felt a bit of helplessness when our communication to the whole world went dark. As the signal got obscured by the spherical mass of rock and dust below us, the dark side of the moon was nothing like the light side, which we see on an almost daily basis. Instead of smooth gray fields and tranquil lunar seas, it was completely covered in dark, deep craters and holes, like as if it was being slowly eaten away by the universe itself. It was finally decided to begin the descent onto the surface. Me and Carver exchanged wishes for good luck with Ackerman, and in the lunar module named Charon, we separated from the CSM named Trinity. After we announced Charon had touched down, our response wasn't cheers and applause, but just mere, this is Trinity, congratulations Charon. I'll relay news onto the other side. Be safe out there, pals. Just like that, we became cut off from the rest of the world. Ackerman was our only link. While he was above the light side, he could communicate with the ground command, and while above the dark side, he could still communicate with us. Never both at once. Even though CSM's orbital period was roughly two hours, he would be in touch for only about 35 minutes each orbit. We landed on a flat plane inside of a huge crater. Contrary to what some people believe, the sun shines at the dark side of the moon, the same way as the light side. The amount of light depends on the lunar phase. It was still shining daylight in the place where we landed but we knew that it would go dark in a few days. I felt excited and curious about what awaited us in this alien world. We waited for about an hour and a half to get the command's reply from Ackerman and spent the time by preparing our suits. Command sends their congratulations. You're to proceed with the recovery. Everything was dead silent as I stepped onto the surface of the moon. I tried to think of something excessively inspiring to say, but that those times were already over. With Carver, we assembled the rover, and after planting our flag next to the spacecraft, we drove off. As we drove across the surface, I saw what I thought was a flash, like a glare reflected by something metallic in the far distance. 
since it was fairly common to see flashes of light because of an interesting physical phenomenon caused by the space radiation interacting with our eyes, I didn't give it much thought and soon forgot about it. After driving for a couple of hours, we reached the satellite, or what was left of it. We immediately noticed that something wasn't right. There were dozens of footprints around the probe leading to a set of two tracks dragging out into the distance. What the hell is this? Asked Carver in disbelief. I don't know, but it seems that somebody got what we came for before us, I replied. Both the tracks and the footprints were different than ours. Whoever took the data wasn't here under the American flag. As I expected, we didn't find the data box. We found the part where it was supposed to be, but it was missing. Luckily for us, we were just in contact with Ackerman, so we reached out to him to describe our findings. This doesn't make any sense. Who would take it? Russians? They don't have a lunar program. Even if somebody took it, how could we not be aware of that? How can the Russians land on the moon without us noticing? He responded. As far as we know, the Russians have no idea that we're here, you know, said Carver over the radio. We're going to follow the trail. I cut off their conversation. Are you guys sure about this? Asked Ackerman. Hell, I'm not sure about this. We're clearly missing something here. But I'll do as you say, Cap, responded Carver. Yes, if whatever was on that probe was so important for two countries to send people here to retrieve it, we have to find out what happened to it, I replied. Copy that, Charon. I'll relay your whereabouts to command as soon as I can. Be careful out there. Our oxygen was about at half capacity now, but we moved on with hopes of solving this mystery. It wasn't long until I saw something in the distance. As we got closer, I realized it was a spacecraft. Its design was different than ours, and it was decorated with a flag of the Soviet Union. I couldn't explain why but I felt that something was really odd about the spacecraft. If there really was Russians on the moon, they would have to have picked up our comms long ago. So there wasn't a point in hiding. To the unidentified Soviet leader, this is the crew of Dawnbreaker. Please respond. We know you're here. We have you in sight. Nothing. We attempted to contact them several times again in both Russian and English, but always received only silence in response. We got closer and I realized why the spacecraft looked odd before. It looked like it had been there for a while. We didn't see much of the interior through the small windows, which had been covered with something from inside. Our air is running low. I don't like this, Miller. We should really head back now, said Carver, with clear uneasiness in his voice. I know, but we have to find out what's going on here. It took some time until we figured out a way to open the airlock. No one was home. The inside was a mess. The interior was splattered with brownish-red fluid, presumably contents of one of the many open food packages lying on the floor. Or was it... No, I... I quickly pushed that thought out of my head. It was a two-seater craft. There was a small amount of leftover supplies and samples, but no signs of the satellite's black box. There was a spacesuit hanged on the wall near the airlock. Two occupants and one spacesuit with a clearly missing name tag. We both quickly realized that the other one must still be out there somewhere, along with its occupant. 
At this point, we were really low on oxygen, so we rushed to get back to our spacecraft. As we reached Charon, with the last bits of oxygen in our suits, I realized something. Tell me, Carver, was it just me or did we not pass the wreckage on our way back? I asked. Shit, don't even mention it. It wasn't there, that's right. We shared our intriguing discovery with Ackerman later, and he was as surprised as Command was when he informed them in turn. That night, I took watch for the first four hours. It wasn't really a night, since the sun was still shining, but for the sake of timekeeping, we refer to the time when we slept as night. When it was finally my turn to sleep, I had a dream about following the flash that I saw the previous day. I walked on and on until I found the same spacesuit from the Russian craft just lying there in the dust. The limbs were twisted and contorted in some gruesome ways, but it was clear that someone or something was inside that suit. I approached and slowly began opening the sunshield that obscured the inside of the helmet. I looked in terror as I saw the inside. It was my face covered in brownish red blood. In the place of eyes, there were only two gaping holes. The next day, we started picking up something on an unused channel of our radio. It was a faint signal coming from somewhere in the crater. We tried to patch it to the speakers, but it didn't make any sense. It was just a repeating sound resembling a person, vocalizing the sound of a single letter or vowel but stretched to about three seconds, followed by an equally long pause. It was very distorted, and clearly wasn't a loop, since each sound was just slightly different than the previous one. We ate, and once again prepared for moonwalk. It was darker than the other day. The sun was still shining, but it was steadily creeping its way under the horizon. We followed the source of the signal for about an hour, when we found something lying in the dust in front of us. I tensed as I looked closer and found out what it really was. It was a spacesuit, the same as the one in the Russian lander. Well, looks like we found our missing friend, said Carver with disbelief. I didn't say anything. I simply jumped off the rover and slowly, silently approached the suit. What are you doing, Miller? continued Carver. Just as I was about to open the sunshield with my shaking hands, the suit came alive, and it grabbed my hand. With the sound traveling through our suits, I heard a weak pomonkite, meaning help in Russian. We carried him to our lander. The patch on his suit revealed his identity as Tarkov. He was in shock and hypoxic. I don't know how long or why he was just lying there, but he was lucky to be alive. For the next couple of hours, he fell in and out of consciousness, but he eventually woke up. Our Russian was bad, but luckily he spoke English enough for us to understand each other. He didn't remember why he was there, what had happened to him and his crew, or what his mission was. When I looked out of the window, I realized that our flag was gone. There were no footprints. It looked as if it had simply vanished. At this point, one of us was really concerned, and we asked to terminate the mission. The command refused, explaining that the recovery of the satellite's data was of paramount importance. 
We decided to continue our search tomorrow and went to sleep. I again had the same nightmare as the day before. I woke up terrified and drenched in sweat. I saw Tarkov standing by the window and looking out. He then walked over to Carver and just stood there, looking at him while he slept for about a minute or two. I silently asked him, Tarkov, what are you doing? But he just mumbled something like them or when and lied down. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night and I kept an eye on him, but nothing interesting happened. The next day we found a picture or a map of the crater we were at in a pocket of Tarkov's suit. There was a point a few miles from where we were that was marked with a cross. Tarkov didn't know what was there, but I soon realized that it was right in the direction where I saw the flash on the first day. We had to check it out. Me and Carver later took off and headed towards this mysterious target while Tarkov stayed in the Charon. In reality, our rover had enough power to carry all three of us, but I insisted that it didn't and that he should stay behind. I don't trust this guy, I said to Carver after I was sure that Tarkov was out of range of our short-range radio. We land on the moon, we don't find the box, and suddenly the probe is gone. Then we find a supposed to-be-dead Russian who doesn't remember when was the last time he took a shit, and now we're heading towards the inconspicuous place that was marked on his map, and he knows nothing about it? You bet I don't trust him. Hell, I don't trust a single step I take in that direction, he replied. What are we going to do about him? He asked later. I don't know yet, but we can't take him with us. Neither the LEM or the CSM is built for an extra passenger, and you know that, I responded. And I'm afraid he knows that too, replied Carver. The sun was setting. After driving for a while, we reached something that puzzles me to this day. Right there in front of us was something I can only describe as a three-sided pyramid. It was about ten feet tall, and its surface was completely smooth and black as night. What in the world is this? asked Carver, with a shiver in his voice. We walked around it and took pictures. What the hell? I suddenly heard through my radio. I turned around and saw Carver, frozen in place, staring at something. There, in the remaining faint light, was a spacesuit about 20 feet away from us. I recognized the missing name patch and realized that it was the suit from the Russian spacecraft. It was standing upright on its feet. The sunshield was open to reveal a sight that terrified me. It was empty. The suit was empty, but it was standing upright. I came back to my senses after I heard a crackling noise coming from my radio. It spoke in a low, deep, distorted voice. Then out of nowhere, I was blinded by an intense flash of light. When I recovered, the thing was gone. Carver, are you all right? I asked. He was silent at first, but then replied. Man, fuck NASA, fuck the army, fuck the satellite, fuck this whole mission. I want to get out of here now. Without any debate, we ran to the rover and drove off back to Charon. When we came back, the sun had already fallen below the horizon, and it was almost completely pitch black. 
The airlock was open, and Tarkov was standing in front of the module in his suit. Damn it. In the rush, we completely forgot about him. I approached him and started. Listen, Tarkov, there's something you... I stopped when I noticed that he was holding something behind his back, but it was too late. He swung and struck me with a sharpened rod. I hit my head on the inside of my helmet, and dazed fell to the ground. When the ringing in my ears stopped, I saw him and Carver fighting in the dust. I stood up and threw myself into Tarkov, propelling us both a dozen feet away. Before I was able to stand again, he was already on top of me. We struggled, and just as he got a grip on the lever that was used to release my helmet, I struck his head with a sharp rock. His visor cracked, and while his air was slowly escaping his suit, I picked myself up and grabbed the rod. It was already stained with blood. He lunged at me, but I stabbed him in the chest, and he fell on top of me. And when our helmets touched, he spoke as the last air was pulled out from his lungs. He's not your friend. Follow the voice. I picked myself up and walked over to Carver. I saw that his suit was punctured on the thigh, and brownish-red blood was being sucked out into the airless vacuum all around us. When I brought him inside the chair, I realized that our first aid kit was gone. He was bleeding a lot, and I managed to slow it down, but I had to treat him properly. I was afraid that if we took off, he would bleed out in zero gravity even faster. There was a med kit in the Russian thing, wasn't there? He said. Yeah, I replied. Miller, you have to go get it. It's not that far from here, is it? said Carver. No, it's not. Are you sure you can hold on until I get back? I asked. Yeah, just go. So I went. Don't die on me, Carver. That's an order, I said before leaving. As I said, it didn't take me long until I reached the Russian lander, but it felt like ages. Throughout the whole journey, I waited for something to jump out of the darkness around me. I wasn't surprised when I saw the suit that was previously hanging on the wall was now missing, but still, I felt a shiver run down my spine. I took their med kit and headed back as soon as I could, but I couldn't stop thinking about Tarkov's last word. I kept repeating inside of my head. I then switched the channel on my radio to the one where we heard the incomprehensible noise on. It was still on. I realized that it was stronger in one particular direction. Follow the voice, I said to myself. Was this the voice Tarkov meant? Who's not my friend? Tarkov? Carver? The mission commander back at Earth? I had to find out. I drove off in the direction of the signal. After driving for at least 15 minutes, I reached a small crater about 30 feet in diameter. With my headlight on, I immediately saw that something was inside, but I couldn't recognize it yet. I stepped over the edge and walked into the crater and switched on my light to full intensity. I stood there paralyzed with raw terror for what felt like hours. There was a rectangular block of the same material as the pyramid at the center of the crater. A body was lying on top of it. Its limbs were contorted in the most twisted and gruesome way possible. His eyes were missing, and in their place were only two gaping holes. It was Carver. 
there was a small box stuffed inside its mouth. It was the black box from the satellite. I took the box and ran out of there as fast as I could. Carver was dead. If, if, if Carver was dead, who was the Carver I left in the chair? He's not your friend was the only thing I had on my mind the rest of the way back. When I returned, Tarkov's body was gone, but Carver was still there, lying, bleeding. But it wasn't Carver. What was that thing? Thank God you're back, Miller, said Carver. Not Carver. Carver was dead, mutilated, dead. Miller, are, are you all right? Continued not Carver. Y yeah, I, I got the kit, I replied. He couldn't know that I know. It, it couldn't know. I treated its wound, and the bleeding finally stopped. I strapped it in, and then strapped myself in. I didn't tell it that I found the black box. I didn't tell it that I found him. With the engine roaring below us, the chair split in half, and the crew compartment pushed us up into the void while the legs stayed planted on the lunar dust eternally. Now, I already wrote on several occasions that I had felt minutes pass as if they were hours. The ascent and rendezvous took only about a bit more than a dozen of minutes. But those minutes felt like decades. I wanted to scream so loud that my lungs would break and I wanted to vomit. But I couldn't because it would find out. I wanted to black out, but I couldn't. I had to save Ackerman. After several lifetimes, we finally docked with Ackerman and the Trinity. Throughout the whole ordeal, we kept him updated, but meeting him was different. He was scared, but I was scared even more. He didn't know that Carver was not Carver. I did know. I did unstrap first and pushed Ackerman out of the docking tunnel. I did kick Carver, or not Carver, right in the face when he followed. I did close the docking tunnel behind me. What the hell are you doing, Miller? What's wrong with you? Shouted Ackerman and slammed me into the wall of the command module. Don't open it. Mike, it's not Carver. That thing in the LEM, it's not Carver. Do you understand? I shouted back in pain. Even though he was a battle-hardened soldier, Ackerman finally broke into tears. I floated past him over to the controls, and before I undocked the chair, I glanced at the docking tunnel window one last time. There it was. A thing with Carver's face and body, but not Carver, staring at us. But his eyes were completely smooth and black as night. He opened his mouth in a way that was simply not possible for a human and let out a loud, disturbing screech that I wish I could forget. In a heartbeat, it turned to dead silence as the Charon detached from the CSM and drifted into the void. Me and Ackerman didn't say a single word throughout the three-day journey back to Earth. We were placed in quarantine for months after we came home. Nobody ever explained to us what happened on that mission. I never learned what was on the black box. Honestly, I didn't want to know after all I experienced, but whatever was there, 
was apparently enough to cancel all the other missions to the moon and beyond. They eventually released us and made it very clear we were never supposed to talk about it. I never saw Ackerman from that day on. The only time I talked about him was when a pair of men in suits came to my home one day, a couple years after the mission. Captain Miller, have you been in touch with Lieutenant Ackerman lately? One of them asked after we exchanged our greetings. No, I never spoke or heard of him since the mission. Did something happen? I replied. I'm sorry to tell you, but Lieutenant Ackerman was found dead in a nearby forest yesterday. I had to sit down. I didn't know him that well, but we spent a considerable amount of time training together, and we lived through hell itself together, so it was more than enough for me to consider him a friend. Poor Mike. How did he die? I asked. We don't know yet, but he had multiple fractures on all of his limbs, and his eyes were gouged out. <laughs>